Hello. Greetings. Thank you for the gift of spending some time with us as we explore what God has to say from us from the pages of Scripture. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ, and we're disciples making disciples in Los Angeles. As part of Jesus' high priestly prayer, as it is seen in John 17, he says, beginning in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be all one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you have loved me. So here is Jesus' prayer and petition for all who would believe on him from their word, i.e. the apostles' word. So all Christians would be one. And that unity is the same type of unity that God shares within himself, that it is relational unity. And it's a beautiful prayer. It's a noble aspiration that has seemed to have completely failed. Uh, because when we look at the world of Christianity, uh, the last thing we really see is this kind of unity. Now, we can hazard that those who are truly Jesus' people are relationally one with one another and relationally one with God. That's kind of the rest of the message of Scripture, that that's what everything that God is doing through people is, is trying to work for in Jesus. Um, but when it comes to Christianity, uh, that unity seems to have been lost. So how is it that we could get to the kind of unity that Jesus expects here? How can we be one with one another as God is one within himself. Let's consider uh, what's happened and what we can see from the scripture. Unity is never easy, and unity has never been perfectly realized while we are in the flesh. And that's something very important to keep in mind, um, that all of us um, continue to sin, fall short of the glory of God, in Romans 3 and 23, 1 John 1, 7, 9 through, 7 through 10, uh, we've got these challenges and these difficulties. Uh, and there was no period of time in history where all Christians were perfectly one as the Father is one within, with the Son. Um, that's, that's never happened either. In 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10, Paul has to upbraid the Corinthian Christians because they uh, are not of the same mind and same judgment. Because uh, one is of Paul, one is of Apollos, another is of Cephas, another is of Christ. The Galatian Christians were in danger of, of accepting a different gospel uh, and of, of falling away from the faith in Galatians 1, 6 through 9. Um, that's based upon the doctrines of the Judaizers, which would also be a, a challenge in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 10 and following. And Paul was significantly concerned enough about it to talk to Roman Christians about it throughout his letter. And soon after that, you have the Gnostics, uh, or the proto-Gnostics, uh, leading to the Gnostics, those who would deny the physical resurrection of Jesus, uh, deny Jesus' physical incarnation. Um, and we see them in 1 John, 2 John, uh, as, as dangers there. In Revelation, we see the condition of the churches, and the dangers of the doctrines of the Nicolaitans and of the various challenges that Christians were having there in terms of um, their resistance against sin, but also uh, from all these false doctrines. And, and 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, 
uh, are full of these concerns about uh, those who would uh, focus on Jewish myths or fables or those who were leading people astray through uh, various false doctrines that uh, uh, these the people would follow these doctrines of demons in 1 Timothy 4 and in verse 1. And so the New Testament abundantly testifies that these challenges were to take place. And we can see that after uh, the apostolic period, it didn't exactly get any better. That power would consolidate itself into the hands of first a, a bishop over the presbyters, and then a bishop of a church over an entire region becoming a metropolitan, and then a few strong bishoprics in Rome and Jerusalem, Constantinople, Alexandria, uh, Antioch. Uh, arguments that were made against heretics and heresy, you know, blossomed in the first few centuries. We can see it not just with the Gnostics, but the Martianites and the Montanists, and it would just continue to grow and grow. And these arguments that are being made against the heretics would themselves become tenets of faith. Uh, like, hey, these churches have had all of these people teaching uh, these truths from before the heretics came around, and truth comes before error. And this now becomes, well, if you can create see a line of people all the way back to uh, one of the apostles in a church, somehow that vouchsafes that that church is somehow faithful uh, is one such argument that was used. Uh, the more the faith went out into the Gentile world, the more the Greek philosophical mindset and system uh, shaped and framed the way people looked at the faith. Uh, more of the forms of Roman government uh, in their system would be incorporated in the way the churches ran themselves. And you begin seeing the insistence on creeds, uh, which many feel are nice, succinct uh, declarations of the faith. Uh, they seem to come out of the rule of faith um, that had been developed even in the early second century. Uh, but what ends up happening is that creeds end up becoming partisan sectarian documents uh, written in such a way to exclude and to try to provide, especially in terms of the, the developments and especially when it comes to the Christological controversy, perhaps even trying to make sharp definitions of things regarding which uh, we are really ignorant and from the scriptures uh, could not make such a definitive uh, determination. And what ends up happening is that uh, starting in the fourth century, the church gets some power and it becomes a function of the state in, in many respects. And therefore, you uh, have a very different situation come about. Uh, you have a consolidation and a hollowing of what came before, the development, quote-unquote, tradition about infant baptism, original sin, uh, and the nature and government of the church getting codified in the end of the Roman Empire. Uh, men like Augustine and Ambrose are highly exalted. And so much of Western Christendom is really shaped by uh, the energy of Augustine and uh, his particular contributions in terms of predestination, uh, in terms of his argument against the Donatists about um, the nature of the sacraments and uh, those who should partake of them. And there is an expectation that all things should be understood within the tradition of what had came, come before, and especially in the collapse of the Roman world. Uh, there was kind of a, a glorification of what had happened in the past and tradition became all important and it became more important to try to understand how something fit in the line of tradition than it, whether or not it was truly something reflective of what happened in the scriptures, uh, what had come down from the apostles.
And this becomes the supreme uh, guiding light for the majority of, of the history of Christianity until about the 18th century. Um, that How does this work within the past traditions? And hey, if everything had been handled exactly accurately, that would not be that much of a, a challenge. But we have all these ecclesiastical adaptation, part of the tradition. Uh, and there's a kind of unity there. But the unity was not based in what uh, had been made known by God in Christ and the Apostles. As much as uh, the, this whole tradition that had grown above and beyond what God had made known through the Apostles. Very much the traditions of men like what the Pharisees were building in Matthew 15. Um, and maintained not by theological persuasion as much as by the threat of coercive force. Um, and st state would intervene and would punish heretics, uh, those who did not go along with the status quo, with uh, violence, suffering, and even death. And even at this time, we start seeing some divisions. Some divisions came because of the Christological controversies, the Monophysite. Uh, division. You then have the great division between the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church in 1054, um, and the Reformation, uh, which a lot of people look at now and think that these, you know, Luther, Calvin, others are looking to uh, go a completely new direction, and they would find that absolutely abhorrent because if Luther and Calvin, in their minds, were trying to return to the traditions that they felt that the Catholic Church of their day had departed from. Uh, Luther and Calvin had no real desire to go ahead and uh, and participate in this grandiose uh, uh, project that people like to think that they have. Uh, they do. They were, in a sense, an attempt to restore, but they're trying to restore a, a, a tradition. Uh, there's been no better Augustinian uh, than Calvin, for instance, and that's why a lot of the doctrinal matters were not really upset in the Reformation. Uh, and those who were willing to really upset the apple cart, um, the Anabaptists, for instance, uh, were um, very much uh, opposed by everybody. Uh, and many of them were killed because they did not go along with the things everybody else held in common. And, and this attitude only began to change in the 18th and 19th centuries uh, with the Enlightenment, with the questioning of tradition uh, of the past. And uh, at this time, we've, we started to see the development of denominationalism anyway, uh, based upon factionalism and party lines. Um, denominationalism is kind of the uneasy truce that you get when uh, you no longer have one church that seems to be predominant that is able to actively kill or, or persecute to, to almost nothing anybody who disagrees with them. Uh, so once you have Catholics and Anglicans and Reformed and Lutherans, uh, and then you start adding other groups based upon divisions within those groups, um, Methodism and the Quakers and the Pietists and, and so on and so forth. Uh, the uneasy truce is denominationalism, which now looks at the, um, the the faith as all these different traditions that are now one you know, that that are kind of mutually competing, and, and at the beginning especially, mutually contradictory, and realizing they're mutually contradictory. Um, and a lot of these also get developed not just along doctrinal lines, but also uh, national lines. So Anglicanism is a Church of England. Um, get Anglicanism in other contexts. Um, and, and you would see uh, various movements coming out of different geographical locations as permutations of some other group that was based in more geographic location. And also church governance. You know, within the Reformed movement, you have uh, Presbyterians with, with an elder system, Congregationalists with more of a Congregational 
uh, system, and even there were uh, the Reformed Church uh, in the Netherlands and, and so on, uh, being a little different because of a different flavor there. And of course, then you also have Baptists and then later Pentecostals and things of that nature. And there's a lot of sociological reasons in these divisions, matters of race or nationality. A lot of the internal divisions within denominations, uh, Southern Baptist Convention, very famously established uh, in contrast with the Northern Baptists over the question of slavery. Um, and this leads to the situation we have today where we have all kinds of various groups that are divided, uh, mostly by doctrines but also by nationalities, ethnicities, uh, certain cultural customs and things of that nature. And denominational itself is really on the decline right now uh, because we've seen a really big rise in movements. Somewhat, somewhat because there's kind of been an embarrassment about the denominational situation that we find. Uh, but uh, we see now that a lot of the doctrinal and disputations and the moral disputations are going on within various groups so that you can kind of put various groups on on a continuum and see that uh, there might be a lot more agreement between people of different denominations but have shared doctrinal feelings uh, or, or on the conservative progressive um, uh, spectrum uh, across denominational lines and people do within their own shared denomination. And beyond that, we've also seen the movements, uh, evangelical movements, um, house church movement, mega church movement, emergent movement, and especially now the non-denominational movements. Uh, non-denominationalism is having its fad uh, where you have churches developing, and, and if they have multiple locations, they become kind of a franchise, more like a McDonald's than a denomination. And this is not necessarily a desire to get back to New Testament simplicity as much as it is just a, a demonstration of our modern movement toward deinstitutionalization and uh, a lack of confidence in inherited authorities. And this is the situation we have out there now in, in what is called Christianity. All of these divisions, all of these different allegiances. And it's, it's good to ask in this environment, okay, how do we obtain a kind of unity that God would have us to have here, uh, based in Scripture. Uh, and first, we have to identify that the current status quo actually is not healthy or sustainable. In 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10, Paul says that he wanted the Christians of Corinth to be of the, united in the same mind and the same judgment, have no divisions among you. And the divisions that he was lamenting there, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ, that sounds very suspiciously like the kind of divisions that we have in the modern uh, world of Christianity. I follow the Pope. I follow Luther. I follow Calvin. I follow Wesley. I follow uh, Christ. I, you know, I follow Graham. And it doesn't really matter who the person is, um, but you have that same kind of, of situation. Uh, you see in Ephesians uh, 2 and 3 that the whole mystery that what God is doing in the church is that he's bringing all these people uh, from different nationalities and ethnicities uh, into one man in Christ. And so the idea there would be a church that is of one nationality, that is not that is separated out from other nationalities, or one race separated from other races, is also something that is just not according to what God intends. Uh, and I think most even in Christendom have seen that this is very unhealthy. And that's where you have the answer, which is in the ecumenical or ecumenic movement or ecumenism, the idea of unity in diversity. And the goal, they say, is to have unity in the matters of the essentials uh, and in matters of disagreements, more charity. And it's an appealing idea, uh, but is it really what uh, God intends for us to have for unity? 
Uh, again, we look at the prayer Jesus has, that they may be one even as you, I am in you and you and in, are in me, the, the unity of God. Uh, being in the same mind and the same judgment here in First Corinthians 1 and verse 10. In Philippians 2, 1 through 4, seek the best interests of others and consider others better than themselves. And the best evidence really comes from Galatians, though, where, where Paul lays into Galatian Christians and says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Well, what is this different gospel? Are we denying the resurrection? Are we uh, challenging that Jesus is God? Uh, no, what we're seeing is that uh, in the Galatia, the Christians who are Gentiles are being encouraged by uh, Jewish Christians to be circumcised and to observe parts of the law. And to Paul, this is just a, a denial of, of what God has done in Jesus. It's, it's going back to the rudiments of the world. And, uh, and those who would do such things, he said, fall from grace in Galatians 5. And um, the ecumenical movement, in many ways, is declaring victory and defeat because uh, we don't necessarily see a move toward uh, different denominational divisions being healed as much as denominations saying to one another, okay, you have your particularities, we have our particularities, and we'll just, uh, on, on everything we agree on, that's what we're going to consider the points of agreement that we need. And on things on which we diverge, well, we can have some disagreement, uh, which leaves everything from the way of baptism, not even just the mode of baptism, but whether it should be infants or it should be adults, and believers' baptism or, or based on, on the parents. Um, not just some eschatological things, but the nature of the Lord's Supper, um, governed and organized, um, even in some respects, the relation between the Old and the New, Old Covenant and New Covenant, and, and what the basis upon which we understand such things. Uh, and so this really gets to the question, how do you define, define the essentials and how do you define matters of liberty? It is true that there are matters of liberty. Romans 14, uh, 1 Corinthians 8, we, we learn about how certain things are to be handled so that the uh, uh, people who have differing opinions on certain things that regarding which God doesn't uh, have any concern uh, are able to still work together in the faith. And actually a very important part of biblical unity is, is working through, okay, on certain issues that don't matter, which are things like food and drink uh, in Romans 14, how do Christians get along with each other? And and we see that those who have the belief they can do something are to rub their noses of those who don't in it, and those who don't think that they have their right to do it kind of respect the, the faith of those who do. Um, but there it's, you know, the kingdom is not matters of eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And... Uh, it's very hard to find a unity if one believes that children should be baptized and one believes you have to be baptized as a believer. Uh, it's very hard to find unity when two people look at the Lord's Supper and consider it to be very different things. It's very hard to find unity when some think the church should be governed by the congregation and others think it should be governed by elders or by a bishop. Uh, it, it's There's really not unity in these things. And so that's why... Uh, a lot of the things that might be put into matters of uh, liberty, I don't know if Neth Paul, the apostle, would agree with that. Those things are really uh, matters of liberty. That some of them really get to the heart of what it means to be Christian. Uh, the Lord's Supper is to be a demonstration of the unity that we share in the faith. Uh, and it's not to be a matter uh, where we can't even figure out what that is, for instance. 
And so, it's good for us to consider the plea that's gone out for, for many years now, and that is a plea to uh, come back to the essentials of the faith, of the gospel as simply preached by Jesus through the apostles, and to restore the, the faith of the period of the New Testament. Not to restore all the permutations of the New Testament church with all of its failings and foibles, but to look to the scriptures and to uh, look at the tradition of, of Christianity and, and see the ugliness for what it is as much as what it may be commendable. And to certainly hold firm to what is commendable, but to be willing to call out the ugliness for what it is and to get beyond the paradigms and the limitations and imagination uh, that have come about because of the status quo of all these various groups and to really ask what would it look like for us to be who Jesus would have us to be. Because the basis of unity in the scriptures is that we are serving Jesus as Lord and Christ, and that he is the head, uh, that he, he is the one who uh, is the one who dictates all things. In Ephesians 5, 22-32, uh, and this authority is not uh, delegated to some one group of people over everybody, uh, that elders may shepherd a given congregation, but they are all doing so by the authority of Jesus and according to what Jesus has taught. Uh, it's not based in names of parties or factions in, in 1 Corinthians 1, uh, but it's in Christ. And by the way, there can be a faction, I am of Christ, when that faction is trying to be a faction in the midst of factions. Uh, the idea is that we are not trying to follow Christ against those who would follow Paul, Apollos, or Cephas, but that we appeal that all should be following Christ, and that's, um, that, that we're not trying to create a new sect out of all these other sects. Uh, the idea is that God's word is the authority. That we listen to you know, what God has made known in Jesus, in John 1, 1 through 3, and 14 and 18, 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, how it's been made known for us in Scripture. That uh, when, as long as we have the sectarian spirit within denominationalism, that the spirit of unity is not going to be found there. Uh, it's got to come out from that sectarian spirit, the demonstration of the defeat, and to admit the defeat that denomination sectarianism has become to get out of that, to get back to the kind of Christianity that God envisioned for us in the New Testament. And biblical unity can only exist when believers are looking to God for strength and truth and to work with one another in their mutual bond. And this is how we can get back to a much better foundation for our unity. But that's not where unity ends. So many times we talk about unity, we want to talk about on what we agree about. And it's true that if you're going to maintain biblical unity, you're going to have to agree on many of the things that the Bible has taught to be true. It's very hard to be unified if people have different opinions about who Jesus is and, and, and his nature. It's very hard to be unified when you have different ideas on what it what was required for salvation and how it's supposed to be done, or how the church should do its work, or, or even how the church should function in the assembly. But even if you can have complete and full agreement on uh, what is true in these ways, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're unified. Uh, in Ephesians, Revelation 2, 1 through 11, excuse me, the church in Ephesus uh, has com commendation from Jesus because they had seen those who were false apostles, identified them as such, and had nothing and, and rejected them. That they did not grow weary in their stand for the truth. And yet, Jesus had this against them that they had left their first love. And in fact, they were going to lose their standing as a lampstand in the in, in, before Jesus um, if they did not return and repent from what they had, uh, uh, had left from. And so, uh, you look at John 17 again. The Father and Son are unified more than just in what they accept is true. 
I mean, the father and the son have agreement about what is true and about uh, the nature of the kingdom and, and about all these things. But uh, if, if all, the only unity of God were a doctrine, we would not consider them very much unified. No, they're relationally one. Uh, they are share in love. They share in service and, 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 and all kinds of other things well beyond um, what uh, we can understand. In Philippians chapter 2. Uh, Paul makes this great appeal, very powerful appeal to the Philippian Christians for whom we can tell by by all measures are in doctrinal agreement. But he says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. He would go on and talk about having uh, the mind among themselves, which is theirs in Christ Jesus, of humiliation to be glorified, uh, to uh, uh, serve one another. And so this is, uh, notice that Paul absolutely wants them to have the same mind, but also have the same love and to be a full accord, full accord doing nothing from rivalry, but counting others of, of greater value, which is far harder than just agreeing on what is true. Uh, likewise, in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about the, the church as a body. And he's very insistent that there are these different parts of the body and that on the parts of the body that are less honorable, we bestow greater honor and on unpresentable parts or truth, greater modesty that our more presentable parts don't require that God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body. But the members may have the same care for one another, that if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So, yeah. Christians are going to have to agree on what is true and what is right in Christ in order to be able to do that. But at the same time, they can agree on what is true in Christ and yet not really care for one another. Uh, their agreement on what is true doesn't mean they're practicing what is true. And that's been always the big challenge is it's not good enough just to know the truth and to accept the truth and to agree on the truth. It's to embody the truth. And the embodiment of the truth is that we are to be one as God is one. That we are called to be relationally one with God and relationally one with one another. That if we uh, say we love God and we have not seen, we manifest that love by loving our brethren who we do see. And that's why Paul said that there, in order to make sure there's no division in the body, that we must give honor and encouragement to the parts that seem to lack it and the ones that seem to be more unpresentable, uh, that there may be no division, that all suffer together. All are honored together if one is honored or if one suffers. So we see here that uh, you can have a bunch of people who agree on what's true, but they could be deeply divided. And that's not biblical unity. We can't say that that is acceptable in the sight of God. And so we must agree on what is true generally. And then we need to maintain humility, compassion, and willingness to seek the best interests of others and not acting according to rivalry or conceit. And this is what's extremely difficult, but it's essential um, because it's we're not manifesting Jesus if we just accept together what is true. We're only manifesting Jesus when we recognize that what has, God has done in Christ is true, when we respect what God has made known about how the kingdom of Christ should be established and should be governed, and then that we go on and embody those truths by suffering for one another, loving one another, maintaining humility, uh, not doing anything out of uh, rivalry or conceit. Uh, not being aligned with the factions of the world, but aligned with Christ and to put to lie anything in the world that might divide us that we can share 
in the unity of what God has accomplished for us in Jesus. So let's therefore work toward true biblical unity to shun human imitations of it, fulfill God's will for his people, that we would be one with one another as he is one within himself. And we're so glad that you've given us the gift of spending this time together. We hope you've been benefited by it. Uh, if there's uh, anything you'd like to talk about further about this, um, if you have a prayer request, you'd like to learn more about us, please find us online at Venture to Christ or .org or on social media. And um, please share this uh, recording with others on, on social media and uh, subscribe to our podcast wherever you found us. We uh, certainly hope that the Lord blesses you and keeps you in all that you do. Have a great day.